Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Robert Vining. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Robert Vining. Dr. Vining is an associate professor and research clinic director at the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research, Palmer College of Chiropractic. Beginning in private practice in Pennsylvania, he eventually transitioned to the role of clinician educator, teaching courses in clinical biomechanics at Cleveland Chiropractic College, now Cleveland University, and serving as teaching clinic director at Logan College of Chiropractic. More recently, Dr. Vining has taken on the role of clinician scientist, serving as a co-investigator on 11 federally funded clinical studies, including those conducted with the Veterans Affairs and U.S. Department of Defense Health Systems. He was also co-principal investigator on a series of privately funded research projects focused on integrating chiropractic care into a rehabilitation specialty hospital. Dr. Vining is a lead or co-author on over 30 peer-reviewed journal articles, two book chapters, and numerous other publications related to chiropractic care, musculoskeletal diagnosis, and translating research evidence into clinical practice. Dr. Vining, it's a privilege to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thank you. I, uh, I feel privileged to be here. Well, I wonder if you could tell us uh, how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place. Well, um, I suppose that's a long story that I'll make. Uh, I'll make short. Um, when I was in high school, I um, actually wanted to be a snowmobile mechanic. But uh, at some point, I realized that it doesn't snow all year round, and um, in fact, most most of the year it doesn't snow. And um, I was looking for something something else. I was struck with the idea that the chiropractic profession was focused on structure and how that related to function. That that whole sort of concept of structure versus function, even though I really didn't know much about it, uh, as a high school student, really started to intrigue me, and I had a desire to help people. Uh, so I started going around and talking with 
different doctors of chiropractic to get their get their um, take on what it was like to be to be a chiropractor. And what I got was this sort of common theme that it's great to be able to help people, and they seem to be happy and and you know really really happy with what they were doing. And that so that intrigued me further. I, I looked into some other healthcare disciplines, but uh, the the idea of sort of uh, trying to help someone without drugs or surgeries, I, I'm certainly not opposed to drugs or surgery, but it was sort of this idea of helping someone in relatively non-conventional ways was also appealing to me as well from a sort of intellectual perspective. So that's that's what sort of got me on on the path, and uh, I've been on that uh, that that chiropractic path ever since. Well, that's fascinating, and uh, I was not expecting the snowmobile mechanic. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, very very askew from where I ended up. That's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, but dealing with structure and function for sure, uh, similar that way. Did, did you have any uh, personal experiences in chiropractic or did you just kind of look, do a broad overview of professions and say, that chiropractic seems pretty interesting? As a child, I was treated uh, periodically on a preventive basis uh, with chiropractic care, but um, you know, as, as as a younger child, um, it was it was all fine and good, but I wasn't interested in that. I was more interested in you know other things. Uh, it was only um, at that uh, at that point in high school where you realize, oh, I've got to I've got to figure out something soon. I'm going to be an adult, and I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. That uh, I started thinking about it. So even though uh, so those those early experiences, I guess, even though they were sort of few and far between. Uh, certainly played a role in me being aware of the profession. Terrific. Terrific. Well, we're very thankful that you are a chiropractor today and contributing all of this great research that uh, you have been, and and we certainly want to talk about that. But before uh, we get to all the the great research, uh, I'm also curious to know about your practice as a chiropractor. How long did you practice? Um, and tell us uh, some of those experiences, and, and then ultimately, what, what got you interested in research? Well, I have a circuitous path when it comes to getting involved with research, but my, my career started in, in private practice. I practiced for 14 years in a small town in Pennsylvania, and for most of that time, I thought I would spend my entire career in private practice and was fine with, with that idea. Um, but I, ever since being in college, I had a desire to teach uh, on some level. And that, that bug just really sort of never went away. And so eventually, I started looking for teaching opportunities. And one came along at Cleveland Chiropractic College, which is now Cleveland University, and so after 14 years of practice, I did what um, what was really one of the most painful experiences of my life, and that was to leave my practice, to leave my 
patients and so forth, and to uh, pack up and move halfway across the country and uh, start teaching. But I really wanted to teach, and I felt like that was sort of the next uh, place for me to go professionally, and I felt like I could um, perhaps influence uh, future colleagues uh, such that my my overall work could have a, a, a greater impact. So I uh, taught at Cleveland. I eventually moved to uh, Logan College where I directed uh, a teaching clinic. And uh, then in 2008, I had an opportunity to come to the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research at the time, the center was looking for someone with clinical and research experience. And I didn't have research experience, but I did have a fair amount. I had 18 years or so of, of clinical experience at that point and some educational experience. And uh, what the center needed at that time was someone to direct the research clinic, someone to provide clinical input, uh, the clinical perspective when it comes to interpreting data and in designing studies. Uh, the center was in a state of growth, and um, so uh, I applied and and um, eventually was was offered the position and and took it. And it was an opportunity for me to to um, get involved in research, to learn more about research, and to have, um, have input into it. And over the past 10 years, I've learned a lot about uh, research and have become um, you know, a researcher myself. And uh, thanks in large part in, in the primarily to uh, those colleagues of mine that, that I work with here at the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research. They took someone without any research experience and, and helped train me um, to, to be a researcher. And that that's, was really invaluable in, uh, in, my, in my transition from moving from uh, just, just a clinical environment to a research environment. Yeah, well, the the clinical part is huge, and you know that that is one thing that researchers constantly need, especially if they're not in practice the, themselves. So uh, I applaud you on that, and and your your work is is uh, extremely valued, and and your input is valued on these kinds of studies, I'm sure, and uh, forms a big part of it. So that clinical experience is absolutely huge. Um, can you tell us what a typical day might be like for you? Well, my days vary quite a bit. Um, I work in collaborative with collaborative teams on a, a number of studies at any at any given time. I may be uh, spending many hours a day searching uh, through search engines. Uh, trying to find literature to uh, inform me on a, a study that I'm developing, or uh, I may be spending a lot of time writing uh, manuscript or study protocol. I spend a fair amount of time, well, 
yeah, several hours each day, usually in meetings with uh, research teams as we uh, meet regularly to either design, implement, or um, analyze and um, publish our results. So much of my work is is collaborative in nature. And in fact, I would say that really all of my work is is collaborative in nature, even even though much of the time I may be alone in my office, it's it's very much working on projects that are involving lots of lots of uh, other team members. So I'm involved now in in several clinical studies. Uh, two of them are offsite. One is a study that's being conducted in Pensacola, Florida, at the Naval Air Station, the hospital at the Naval Air Station and another in Veterans Affairs in Iowa City. And then we are planning uh, a third study that will be taking place in uh, multiple Veterans Affairs hospitals uh, involving chiropractic care. And uh, that study is, is uh, actually a very, very large, very, uh, uh, very complex study that will take us another uh, year or more to uh, finish designing before we can implement that particular study. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I hope to have Dr. Lisi on the podcast at some point here soon to tell us about all of the amazing stuff that's going on at the VA. So I look forward to to those studies. Uh, now, I'm you've, sure that will, I'm sure, yeah, go I'm ahead. Sure that will be a, a, I'm sure that'll be a good, good podcast. Dr. Lisi is uh, a member of uh, a couple of our research teams. Awesome. Uh, involving involving VA. Awesome. Now, you've been published in a wide uh, range of excellent journals, including Spine, JMPT Spine Journal, JEK, Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, and uh, Journal of Multidisciplinary Healthcare, and, and so many others. Uh, I'd like to talk about some of your most recent research today, uh, and then we can talk about how a chiropractor in practice might be able to implement the kinds of evidence that uh, yourself and your team are putting out in the world for us to, uh, to digest and try to use in practice. So uh, let's uh, talk about um, three papers that, that go together and they, they all have an interdisciplinary theme. Um, so I'm not sure if it really matters which one we talk about first, but uh, this interdisciplinary set of articles deal with interactions at a specialty hospital in New Hampshire. And these are, I think, super interesting uh, contributions to the field. So I'm really excited to, to get your input uh, as to um, you know how these papers got developed and, and how you got a chiropractor on staff at the hospital. So uh, perhaps the first paper we could talk about is one called Patients Receiving Chiropractic Care in a Neurorehabilitation Hospital, a Descriptive Study. And this comes from the Journal of Multidisciplinary Healthcare, 2018. Uh, so could you give us uh, some background on, on the, the, I guess, the series of articles, um, how you got the chiropractor in there? Yeah, sure. So this study... Uh, had its genesis in 2014 when a retired alum from Palmer got in touch 
with Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research because he was very interested in um, helping to fund a chiropractic presence at this hospital called Crotchet Mountain Specialty Hospital in Greenfield, New Hampshire. And uh, so it, it took about six months to um, get a proposal together and work with the hospital, which was also interested in uh, adding a chiropractic uh, service line. But there were a lot of unknowns. This, this particular hospital was focused on neurorehabilitation inpatient neurorehabilitation for patients with severe brain injury, spinal cord injury, stroke, and other complex neurological conditions. So these, these patients typically are patients that, first of all, simply cannot walk into a chiropractic's office, but, but do not. Uh, and so what we, what we did is we, des we designed uh, a study that would that would really involve a, a series of studies that would help facilitate the integration of a chiropractor into the medical staff and then um, collect data that could inform, further inform the integration process and serve as uh, data that could be used as models at other settings. So uh, we began this the officially in 2015 with, uh, I, um, I gave a grand rounds presentation along with, uh, Dr. Christine Gertz, who, uh, is co-investigator on this study. We gave grand rounds presentations to the hospital staff in January or February of 2015. And, and, uh, for the first half of 2015, we helped, uh, the administration with, changing their medical staff bylaws and creating a job description and conducting focus group interviews to understand what the perception about chiropractic was among patients, among staff, among administrators, and even uh, interested community members. And all of that was, was very informative in helping us uh, to eventually decide on uh, who, who was hired. And uh, that chiropractor was hired in late September or early October of 2015. And then another series of events had to occur before he started treating patients. And that took about eight weeks to get credentialed and um, really had a crash course in being trained to treat patients in this facility. So this facility treats patients uh, in an interdisciplinary model. Now, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary are terms that are used interchangeably, but technically they're really quite different. Multidisciplinary simply means that there's more than one discipline. And a multidisciplinary setting may involve collaboration. It may not involve collaboration. But interdisciplinary refers to not just a multidisciplinary setting, but where there is collaboration on a really a pretty high level. In other words, where a team, a, a defined team of providers 
agrees on and uh, executes essentially all of their activities uh, based on a single agreed-upon treatment plan. And this requires care coordination on a, on a much higher level. And uh, so this was the this was the setting in which in which chiropractic care was was introduced, and also a setting where um, where there were a lot of challenges for chiropractic. So, for example, I think that um, most most chiropractic care experiences the um, the doctor is, on some level, depending on a reasonably functioning nervous system. But when uh, a DC is treating a patient at the Crouch and Mountain Specialty Hospital, almost by definition, the patients do not have normally functioning nervous systems. Sometimes their spinal cords are severed. Sometimes, uh, you know, large uh, uh, either diffuse or well-defined areas of the brain are are, are damaged, uh, sometimes damaged significantly. And so the, uh, the way you think about care, even on a, a, the most basic level, can be, can be different. But this particular paper that, that we did, um, that we published in May, um, talks primarily about the services that um, were provided by uh, the chiropractor at the hospital, and the, the, the clinical state of the patients. So one of the challenges with integrating chiropractors into multidisciplinary settings, whether they work in an interdisciplinary model or not, one of the challenges is that people really don't know what chiropractors do, or they don't know what they could do in this, in you know, in any any given settings. So, in other words, they're they're trying to understand people. People may not understand the niche and the niche that chiropractic can fill. And the chiropractor might not be able to understand the niche that they can fill until they're actually in in that particular setting. So, what we set out to do with this particular paper was to I, first uh, identify and sort of define the the physical state of the, of the patients, the complexity of uh, the challenges that patients had at this hospital. And then when, when faced with these types of patients, what are the services that chiropractors can provide so that we give this, this view, this glimpse, if you will, of, of a niche that it can fill in this setting. And so that's really what the, what this what this paper does. It describes um, uh, the complexity of patients and and the types of procedures that were that were employed and the reasons for which they were employed. That was a fantastic uh, overview, and it just gave me a whole bunch of other questions to to think about. Um, uh, you you mentioned that some would have perhaps. Uh, severing of the spinal cord and, and other significant, uh, injuries. I, what comes to my mind is, um, yeah, first how the 
how the patient would view that, uh, what they've heard about chiropractic, uh, what they think chiropractic can do, and then certainly what the other providers would think having a chiropractor on staff. And I think our, our next article might get into that a little further. So I'll, uh, I'll hold that question back until then. Um, did you attempt to quantify in, in any of these papers or, or, or currently, uh, any of the outcomes of chiropractic care? We didn't because it really wasn't possible. This hospital has a relatively low census, um, 62 bed hospital. And because patients are being treated for such, um, really life changing, uh, neurological problems, they're often under care for months at a time. And so there's relatively low turnover And neurological injury is really varied. So, you know, spinal cord injury is not the same uh, in in any any two patients, nor is uh, stroke or um, or other brain injury. And so, there wasn't a way to group patients in homogenous groups. And uh, because chiropractic care was being incorporated into the into the care teams, there was no way to isolate the sort of the chiropractic care effect from all of the all of the other uh, all of the other care effects. So we so we didn't take it we didn't take the the um, the tactic, if you will, the research tactic of looking at outcomes from a from a sort of a randomized clinical trial kind of perspective. We 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 looked at that issue for actually several months trying to come up with ways that we could do that but in the end it just just wasn't feasible so um which is why we decided that there you know there were other there were other um other important questions to ask and and uh so we so we asked those instead yeah and i think one of the most critical ones uh that i i mentioned a minute ago and that you obviously spent a lot of time considering because you wrote an entire paper on it was the interaction, uh, with, uh, the other providers when adding a chiropractor to the team. And this resulted in a separate paper. And I just love the, well, I love the title and I love the background statement. So I want to go through and I'll just read them. So the title of the paper is be good, communicate and collaborate, a qualitative analysis of stakeholder perspectives on adding a chiropractor to the multidisciplinary rehab team. And that's in chiropractic and manual therapies uh, in June of 2018. And, and the background statement of the paper says, While chiropractors are integrating into multidisciplinary settings with increasing frequency, the perceptions of medical providers and patients toward adding chiropractors to existing healthcare teams is not well understood. This study explored the qualities preferred in a chiropractor by key stakeholders in a neurorehabilitation setting. I just love that. Um, can Can you tell us about what you found in this paper? Yeah, sure. So, um, couple a uh, couple bits of information that are that are important to know I think so Stacy Salisbury is a PhD RN that works here at the PCCR and she was a colleague um, uh, on this project and she she um, she led this uh, qualitative research effort and um, her writing abilities are are uh, 
very very highly uh, honed and and uh, so I'm I'm glad you're 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 picking up on on some of those. The title itself is taken from a statement made by one of the participants when asking about you know what what type of person would you like to see in in a in a chiropractor uh, if they if they were to come on staff. So the, the we conducted um, interviews with faculty, staff, interested uh, community members and patients and families, patient family members, to get an idea of what they expected, how they perceived chiropractic care, um, did they think that there would be any benefit, how did they think it would benefit, what were their concerns, and we got all of, all of, those, um, all of those perceptions in, in that research that resulted in this paper, and the the uh, the be good, communicate, and collaborate quote is really um, summarizes a, a, a great deal of that a great deal of that paper. Now, um, anyone that is looking to be involved in a multidisciplinary setting, even though this paper is focused on really a, a unique specialty hospital, I think it would would be a benefit to to read this paper. You know, I don't know that there is anything that is sort of earth-shattering in any single element of this paper because um, some, some people were concerned about safety of chiropractic care. Some people didn't know enough about chiropractic care to really, you know, say one thing or another. Um, and, and other people were concerned that um, they wanted to make sure that the, the hospital hired a chiropractor that wasn't going to be doing really out-of-the-box things, that they were going to be evidence-based, that their treatments that they were going to use were going to be safe and effective. These are all sort of not, um, at least to us, they weren't, they weren't sort of earth-shattering. But when you look at them in total... Um, and I've just mentioned a, a few a few components. Uh, the the participants were really focused on uh, four four themes. In other words, it was important for a DC coming into a hospital to have a personality that fit, and they needed to be able to comply with institutional uh, directives, institutional policies. And they needed to be aligned with the mission of the hospital. Um, someone that was gonna gonna just be their own person no matter what was not gonna was not gonna work out there. They were also concerned about uh, clinical acumen, whether whether uh, treatments were going to be, um, uh, you know, well thought out and 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 reasoned and safe. They were they were concerned about the this ability of uh, a DC to be a team player. And this is really important, I think, for DCs because um, at least in private practice, you generally don't get a chance to be a, a team player. And in, in these interdisciplinary teams, you have to really be able to figure out um, not just, um, well, you have to be able to figure out where where your treatment fits, uh, where you can contribute, 
where your contribution might be redundant and helpful to reinforce the care of others, or where your care might be redundant and unhelpful, therefore uh, not performing it. So I can give you an example of this. Uh, there was a patient at the hospital that had um, neurological injury that resulted in the, the hand, I'm not sure whether it was the right or the left hand, was contracted and um, flexed and all, all curled up, they had very, very little use of their, of their hand. And so as chiropractors, we, we see something that doesn't move and something that needs to be stretched and we naturally think, well, you know, that wrist isn't moving much and that wrist is giving that person some discomfort. So maybe we should start moving it, getting it, get it loosened up, get it, um, keep it as mobile as we can. But as it turns out, um, that for that particular case, the, even though that wrist was giving the person some discomfort, the fact that that wrist and hand was all curled up actually allowed that person to hold a spoon and to control their wheelchair. And the more sort of stretched and flexed that hand got, the less control they were able to have to help feed themselves and, and you know, ambulate via their, via their wheelchair. So in, sometimes um, what's important is um, recognizing the overall, the overall goal and not just being um, focused on, uh, uh, on just sort of the chiropractic goals. So in that particular instance, there wasn't anything wrong per se with, with uh, wanting to mobilize a, a joint and, and, and get tissues stretched. But when sort of the overall goal was understood, how that could actually um, uh, not benefit the patient by making them uh, less uh, able to control their own environment and feed themselves, then uh, the goals of care can change. And so uh, uh, a DC needs to have this ability to, um, you know, let, let those things go and really, really let the, 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 the treatment plan that is, that is established by the entire team guide, guide their actions. That's really important um, in, in a setting like that. Yeah, um, <clears throat> lots of things to consider, obviously, and I think you've done a really nice job at, at outlining um, you know, the various factors that go into that kind of decision-making. And, and I, I really like the example of the flexed hand and, you know, it, it totally depends on the context, uh, and, and what the outcomes are, not just looking at, uh, pure, you know, range of motion issues and things like that, but looking at, uh, the behavior itself and what, what it will allow to do. So really good. I, I love this discussion. Um, I'd like to talk about um, uh, another paper, and that is a, um, a interdisciplinary rehab for a particular patient. This was one with an incomplete cervical spinal cord injury. Uh, and this was in the journal Medicine, 2017 in August. If you could tell us a little bit about uh, this particular case and and how the the chiropractor. Uh, managed to work with this patient. Sure, this this case is. So we have we have, we have three papers. We have uh, additional uh, publications uh, in in the works for uh, resulting from from this work. But 
this was the first one that was that was published and it and so the 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 article that talks about uh, patients receiving care and and the services that are provided that provides a kind of a, a one thousand foot view of chiropractic care and then this uh, be good communicate collaborate paper describes a um, patient, family, uh, staff perspective of what, uh, what, is, what is needed in, in, a, in a chiropractor and then at, at a facility like this. And then this case prov- provides a, a more intimate look at how chiropractic care is applied um, in, in, in one particular case in this hospital. So this case describes... Uh, patient that had a severe spinal cord injury and the the injury resulted from a motor vehicle accident 51 year old male the uh, the patient had an anterior discectomy and fusion at C34 and C56 two different two different levels three days after um, the initial injury, and then a week later, for reasons we don't know because it occurred at a different hospital and we were unable to obtain those records, the patient underwent a second uh, surgery, which included a complete or a you know, bony fusion from C3 through C7. So C3 all the way through C7 was, was fused. And subsequent to these two surgeries, the patient uh, developed significant dysphagia, and so he had to have a percutaneous endoscopy tube uh, inserted so that he wouldn't aspirate his food. So about a month after that, he was transferred to the subacute rehabilitation facility, which was Crotchet Mountain Specialty Hospital. And when he arrived at the hospital, he um, had very little ability to move as far as muscle strength was concerned. This was an incomplete spinal cord injury, but it was, it was, it was very significant. He had orthostatic hypotension that was so uh, substantial, he could not maintain any position that was not horizontal. So he was confined to a wheelchair that could tilt in place, he was only able to exert 35 to 50% of the effort that was required to roll or turn in bed. He was dependent upon a mechanical lift to move him from a bed to a chair and so forth. He was bowel and bladder incontinent. And then on top of all of that, he had some pre-existing uh, challenges. So he had uh, a confirmed disability uh, due to bilateral shoulder pain uh, that had been previously diagnosed as uh, arthritis degeneration, uh, or, yeah, just shoulder degeneration, impingement, and impingement. He also had uh, constant thoracic pain. So um, this patient arrived just about the time that the, the chiropractor was hired. So he was engaged in care for a couple of months before chiropractic services came online and um, was, I think, one of the first uh, first cases that uh, the chiropractor started seeing at the hospital. And 
by that time, he had uh, his, some of his orthostatic hypotension had improved, and so chiropractic care was focused on uh, trying to help this patient reduce his shoulder and spine pain and to improve mobility in the shoulder and spine. And so you might ask, why was that the case? Well, it was primarily the case for, I, I think, two reasons. So the first was cervical spine was all fused. There isn't a whole lot you can do with a complete, basically a completely fused cervical spine. And it was still, you know, in a, in a subacute injury stage. But, but secondly, because this patient's shoulder pain and upper thoracic pain was so significant that it was in impeding his ability to participate in his other rehabilitation activities. And that's crucial at, at a hospital where the purpose of being in the hospital is to rehabilitate and to gain as much uh, independent uh, function as as possible. So uh, chiropractic care involved mobilization and stretching to uh, primarily the right wrist and shoulder, which was uh, more effective than the left side, and uh, thrust manipulation to the thoracic and thoracolumbar regions. There was also some mechanical percussion used, and uh, this patient was treated twice per week. Uh, treated in various positions, sometimes in a in the wheelchair, sometimes uh, on a on a just a flat flat table, flat therapy table surface. After um, four months of being at the hospital, the this particular patient's their orthostasis was improved. He could he could maintain upright positions for long periods, and the peg was removed. The percutaneous endoscopy endoscopic gastronomy tube. That, too, was related, removed. And uh, the patient's uh, symptoms in the shoulders, he no longer had shoulder pain. He had, he had shoulder stiffness. He had some arm stiffness and some leg stiffness, but he was not complaining of pain. And this was, this was really the focus of chiropractic care, to help reduce the pain enough so that this patient could engage with physical therapists and occupational therapists who were focused on movement strategies and transfer strategies and, you know, other areas of, uh, of function that will help this patient uh, be able to live as independently as possible when they, when they leave the hospital. So at that point, uh, care changed. Now, um, in, a different, in a different way, uh, Chiropractic care was focused still on the goals, in this case, uh, the goals that were primarily being directed by physical therapy and occupational therapy. Now, that doesn't mean physical therapy and occupational therapy was, was telling what chiropractic care was doing. This, this, is, this is reorienting goals based on a common, a common plan. And so uh, after this patient's thoracic pain was gone, now it was time to help improve upper extremity mobility and strength. And that, and that was really the focus for the next several, several months until this patient was eventually discharged. At discharge, this patient was able to dress and bathe his upper body. He was able to use a computer. He was even able to go from a seated to a standing position with some assistance, uh, with assistance from a person and uh, also use a two-wheeled walker. Now, this doesn't mean he was able to just 
move right on. It, his his gait was very um, very restricted, but compared to the way he was when he when he entered this facility, it was uh, really a, a significant difference. And so, what we see in this case is really a microcosm of the of what we what we saw in in lots of different cases at at this hospital in that chiropractic care is applied much like all the other um, disciplines applied their care in a way that uh, supports the overall rehabilitation of the patient and also supports the other disciplines that are focused on a, just a different uh, area of area of rehabilitation. Yeah, this is really fascinating, especially with the just the level of complexity of the patients uh, that I'm thinking about that would be at such a hospital. And it brings up a point to me uh, in our in our own research, and I'm so happy that you're you're doing this kind of research. But it brings up a point um, that you know. Chiropractors in practice see patients with all sorts of complexity, probably not to uh, to this level, I imagine, but we certainly see complex cases. And many of our studies, uh, randomized clinical trials, for example, with uh, strict inclusion and exclusion criteria would most certainly uh, keep these people away. So I'm really happy to see uh, that these studies are, are coming out, and, and I look forward to more studies looking at uh, comorbidities and chiropractors taking care of them, because I think it's a, a big need, uh, a big gap in our literature, and, and I think one in which we can really help a lot, a lot more people. Uh, so thanks for uh, paving the way in this. This is uh, fantastic. I do have a question. Um, just overall, after we've gone through these three studies, what is your sense as to the other providers' uh, perceptions about chiropractic care, maybe from the beginning to, to the end of this process? Or I guess it, the process is still continuing. But what are, what are their perceptions and what's the overall reception, I guess, from hospital staff and, and patients and the like? Yeah, so that, that is... Uh... The, the perceptions of the staff were were quite varied. Um, we 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 didn't note um, certainly going into this study that there was a particular um, uh, really you know negative negative attitude. Uh, a lot of the perceptions were were sort of neutral or a sort of uh, just a little wary, but not outright, um, you know, opposed or antagonistic. And um, over time, what, what, we, what we saw was a, was a gradual, gradual change uh, in, a, in a positive direction. So uh, just a couple of months after chiropractic services were, were implemented, there was... Uh, there was a time where one particular provider was was um, well just expressing expressing uh, different uh, sentiments that were that were not positive toward toward chiropractic care and I happened to be uh, visiting the hospital 
uh, as as just um, part of uh, some of my duties uh, as uh, investigator on the study. And I was talking with the with the doctor there, who was uh, the chiropractor, who was telling me about the, the situation and and what I what I perceived uh, from the, uh, the the little bit that he told me about was that this particular provider was not clear on what uh, what he was doing and was concerned about patient safety. And this particular pr provider wasn't, um, I guess, didn't want to go into the, to the record and try to decipher the chiropractic terminology to try to figure out what was what was going on and so I suggested that you know it may be beneficial and and uh, I suggested this because of some other experiences in practice and and in research that um, it may be beneficial to just give a really short synopsis of uh, care and expectations for patients just to to the to the providers on the team when when he cares for a patient, and uh, I just sort of put that idea out there and said, you know, this um, this little conflict here may very well just be the fact that this person isn't sure that the patient's safe, and um, they, and and they're not sure the language you're using, and and so. Um, so he did. He took that suggestion. He made it his own. He created this this uh, daily report, if you will, and and um, it ended up being a real real key communication tool. And I think really helped open open the doors uh, with that one individual and and also um, also with others because it helped the other providers get what he was doing. Oh, he's doing this. He expects maybe. You know, this person might be a little sore tomorrow because he, he, you know, he did this or that. So if we see that, and you know, we can expect that, and we know how to address it. And um, and he noticed, you know, he noticed this or that, and so um, maybe uh, maybe primary care needs to look at look at that and so forth. And so it was really this 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 report that not just that didn't just describe what he was doing, but it also communicated his, his, uh, clinical insights and his, his, um, ability to interact with, with healthcare professionals of different professions using their language, which was really key. Um, when you integrate into a setting, um, it's, it's, it's just really important to learn the language that that others are speaking, or or their. Um, it I think it's probably uh, certainly unusual and probably very unlikely that uh, a single provider integrating into a setting where um, there are lots of other people and all of those other people are going to accommodate to the single person integrating in. It's really the the, the onus or the burden. Of integration is on that person that's integrating, and 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 that's what we saw there. Gotcha, gotcha. <clears throat> um, I wanted to talk about a, uh, another paper, but if we could maybe just 
talk about it fairly quickly. And, and actually, it might blend into uh, the the next discussion points, which are about bringing evidence into practice. So maybe this is a pretty good segue. Um, you wrote a paper in the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association in 2013, and it was about evidence-based diagnostic classification system for low back pain. And um, I, I read through most of it. Uh, I looked, I, what I found really interesting were the uh, appendices and just the kind of a checklist approach, which was very um, uh, nice uh, from the practitioner in me to see something that I could implement right away. So um, can you tell us a, a briefly about this paper? Sure. This this paper, um, I'm glad you noticed those appendices because those appendices were literally written for practitioners. Um, uh, practitioners, uh, students and researchers, but, but really uh, for practitioners. This paper came from this, this particular uh, diagnostic classification system paper was developed from really um, many, many years of, of my struggles with uh, diagnosis on, on several different levels. And when I came um, to Palmer, I had the opportunity to actually conduct some, some research and learn how, how to do it and, and to, to be involved in it. And so this is one of the, one of the publications that, that came out of that process. When we talk about diagnosis, What's interesting about literally the word diagnosis is that we all have a different definition of what that is. Diagnosis can mean that when we say, what is this patient's diagnosis, we might be talking about, well, can you tell me where the symptoms are coming from, what process or what tissue those symptoms are, are being derived from? Or we could be talking about um, sort of concurrent or aggravating conditions that are going along with it. Sometimes when we talk about diagnosis, we're talking about a person's functional status. Sometimes we're talking about social or psychological factors. Those are all part of diagnosis because part of diagnosing the whole patient. If you think about the biopsychosocial approach, there's a biological component, there's a psychological component, a social component, and all of those involved a certain aspect of diagnosis. And then there are other factors that are important in the diagnostic process, even if it may not be diagnosis per se. And that would be identifying environmental factors that are underlying symptoms. So activities or habits that are really causing the symptoms. So you can address the symptom all day long, but until you change the fact that this person is constantly moving in this, in this wrong direction or in this wrong manner, that um, you, know, you, won't, you won't be able to fix it because the root cause is actually the, the problem with the movement rather than uh, where the pain is being generated. So there are many different ways we talk about diagnosis and think about diagnosis. And when we're in practice, at least when I was in practice, I didn't really separate those out. They all sort of ran together. And, um, and when, I, when I got involved in teaching, I had some 
frustrating moments uh, with talking with other doctors about diagnosis and realizing they're just not on the same page uh, because they're talking about functional status and I'm trying to talk about, you know, something else. And yet we're both talking about diagnosis. So one of the big challenges with diagnosis is actually identifying what particular part or facet of diagnosis you're talking about and then sort of getting everybody on the same page and then you can actually have a, a, a more reasonable conversation. Don Murphy and Eric Hurwitz in 2007 published a, a, a paper that outlined uh, what they call the three questions of diagnosis. And I think these questions are just really um, really helpful for practitioners. So the three questions are, number one, are the patient's symptoms reflective of a visceral disorder or a serious or potentially life-threatening illness? Essentially, is there something bad? Is there something dangerous going on here? That's the first question of diagnosis. First thing we need to do is make sure the patient's not in danger. And then the second question of diagnosis is, from where is the patient's pain arising? That's identifying a symptom source, a process, a tissue, something like that. Where, where are those symptoms coming from? And then the third question of diagnosis is, what else is going on with this person? What's gone wrong with this person that's causing their pain to persist? So this question number two, from where is the patient's pain arising? You can't... You can't um, so, no, let me back up. The, the first question of diagnosis, are the patient's symptoms reflective of a visceral disorder or a serious, potentially life-threatening illness? You can't answer that question without also at least searching for this uh, second question, uh, which is from where is the patient's pain arising? So it was this question number two, where is the patient's pain arising that we were focused on for this article? And can we identify from the literature uh, diagnostic criteria that can, that can be used in a doctor's office efficiently and uh, to give us a better sense of where this patient's pain is, is coming from? So we, we actually spent a couple of years searching through the literature and um, found on quite a few studies. Uh, we ended up synthesizing all of that evidence and um, which ended up in, in the, uh, the classification system paper. What we, what we found is that you can really uh, identify pain in two sort of major categories, nociceptive pain and neuropathic pain. So nociceptive pain means pain uh, arising from firing of nociceptors. Nociceptors are located in only certain tissues, and in the low back, nociceptors are only located in two places, myofascial tissues and in joints. So that means that there are four places. I said two, but uh, um, stay with me for just a second, and we'll get to four. There are four places where we can... Um, have no susceptible pain arising from in the, in the low back. That's the disc, which is a joint, the SI joints, which is a different type of joint, the zygopophyseal joints, there's your third type of joint, and then myofascial tissues. So discogenic pain, SI joint pain, 
zygapophyseal joint pain or facet joint pain and myofascial pain. Once we can identify that those are really kind of the four areas where we're going to get um, nociceptive pain arising from, then we started looking for studies that had um, evidence-based diagnostic criteria that we could get some idea of how strong the evidence was supporting those criteria. In other words, so if I have a patient that I think has uh, pain coming from their lumbar facets and I do an orthopedic test, what does that orthopedic test tell me? If it's positive, does it, does it tell me for sure that patient has a diagnosis? Does it, does it just tell me that it's more likely that they have that diagnosis? And, and if it does, how much? In other words, how strongly can I lean on that diagnostic evidence? Well, there, there are some studies in the literature that can help us understand how much we can lean on that diagnostic evidence. So, for example, for discogenic pain, which is pain that is generated from the disc itself, has nothing to do with nerve roots, just the disc. The disc has nociceptors in it and uh, inflammation or irritation of the, of the disc itself from a number of processes that typically coincide with degeneration but don't necessarily have to be degeneration per se. The disc can, can cause pain, and it can cause pain in a, in a very wide uh, distribution. It can mimic uh, neurological pain and so forth. But there's a phenomenon called the centralization phenomenon. A lot of people are, uh, I'm, I'm sure, aware of it. But it has some diagnostic credibility, if you will. It's supported with a likelihood ratio of 6.9. Now, a likelihood ratio is just a combination statistic of it, where you combine sensitivity and specificity into, uh, into a single number. And if you know the likelihood ratio and you know the prevalence of the condition, you can have a very good idea of how, how uh, strong that evidence is for that diagnosis. And fortunately, we know from uh, provocation discography studies that uh, the prevalence of discogenic pain in uh, persons with low back pain is somewhere around 30%. So if we just take that number of 30%, and um, then we take the likelihood ratio of number of 6.9. There's a, there's a way to calculate this. You can get an online, lots of free online calculators for likelihood ratios, and, or you can get a nomogram that you can just have on a piece of paper, and they're, they're actually very simple to use. But if you have the prevalence and the likelihood ratio, we find that there's approximately a 75% chance that that person has discogenic pain if they're positive on the centralization phenomenon. Now, to me, that's really quite valuable because now I know exactly how much diagnostic weight, um, figuratively, I can lean on that diagnosis. There's a 75% chance that this person has discogenic pain. It's not 100%. Nothing's 100%. Um, I, I would like it to be more, but 75% is, is better than I have no idea um, without the, the knowledge of the prevalence and the likelihood ratio. So... Um, the, the checklist in this paper has the diagnostic criteria listed for these various diagnoses. It's, it's a two-page checklist. It looks kind of long. I think if I looked at it for the first time, I would look at it and say, nope, I don't have time for that in practice. But I can tell you we use it here in the research center, and it is um, 
really very efficient. Um, it doesn't take very long at all to complete this checklist. In many instances, you don't need to complete the entire checklist. You only need to complete certain categories. And most of the items on the checklist are history-based. So most of our diagnostic information comes from, comes from the history. And uh, so the checklist literally takes just, just a minute or two, and you result in um, uh, you know, evidence, evidence uh, that is either pointing toward or against a particular diagnosis. And when we diagnose patients with uh, the same criteria, when I talk with, with you, Dr. Smith, or I talk with whoever else about a patient who has, who has met the diagnostic criteria for diagnosis X, Y, or Z, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and that is, I think, uh, a, a really important thing uh, when it comes not just to talking uh, uh, with colleagues uh, within the profession, but colleagues outside of the profession. At some point, we really need to standardize the way we're, we're going to diagnose um, conditions, name them, and, and talk about them. And so this, this paper was a, a, first, uh, a first step at that. We're actually involved in a, in a project to, to update, this, uh, update this checklist, but um, it's, it's still a ways out. It's a, it's a very, very long process to, uh, to generate these publications. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, there's so much that goes into that, as you said, many years of uh, preparing and thinking about how to go about this project. And, and you know, as I said, just looking through it, the, the logic seems to flow nicely, you know, ask the first question, do they have something that demands they, for example, go to the ER. <laughs> I mean, that would be the first step, right? Should, should I be treating them or not, basically? And uh, so I really like that flow of uh, logic and thinking about the diagnosis. And I will put a link uh, in the show notes for this episode uh, so that everybody can download a copy. Uh, Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association is uh, free full text. So uh, please check out that paper. Um, another thing I'd like to do before we finish today, a couple things, I guess. Um, you know, we've talked a, a lot today about um, integration and, and evidence. I'd like to get your thoughts on how chiropractors in practice can take evidence and and use it in practice and this could be anything from what they do in their waiting rooms to educate patients to health fairs to whatever. Um, do you have some some thoughts on on that? Yes, I do. Um, you know, I think translating research evidence into practice is not necessarily easy. I think one of the things that can be so beneficial today is the fact that you can get research articles sent to you. You don't have to search for them. You can go to PubMed and you can you can set up so that you can you can set up an account so that they will send you articles on any topic that you're interested in. 
at any time. You can say on Thursday, I want them to send me no more than 10 articles on this topic. And every Thursday, until you tell them not to, they will send you the most recent articles that were published in, in, in the past week. And these push services, I think, are really benef beneficial. Uh, because it, it provides, you know, you don't have to necessarily go find go find evidence uh, for things that you are uh, you already know you're you're interested in. A second thing that I think can really help providers is knowing how to read a research article. So I didn't know how to read a research article for a long time. Uh, even as a provider, because I tended to start at the beginning and just go all the way to the end. But research articles are, you know, they're, they're structured in certain ways. And so the end of the background section or the introduction section, usually that last paragraph before you get to the methods, that's what, that's, that paragraph or a sentence in that paragraph will tell you the purpose of that article. You don't have to read the entire background section to, to understand what that article is really about. And now there may be very beneficial information in that background section. And so you may want to, want to read that. You may need to read that in order to, to understand sort of the purpose of the article. But sometimes it's on a topic that you're very familiar with. And so you don't necessarily need to spend much time in the introduction section. You can go right to, right to the end of the introduction and look at the purpose and then help that direct you from there. So uh, another aspect of reading an article is, um, is I guess, a word of caution, and that is that abstracts are dangerous. <laughs> and um, I don't know, maybe dangerous is not, not the best word, but if, if the abstract really told the story, we, didn't, we wouldn't need the article. And abstracts are, are a way to try to summarize articles, but, but um, you, can, you can very easily get, get, the, get the wrong impression and miss really key information by, by reading abstracts only. And so that's a, that's a bit of a word of caution. But as far as how to, how to you know, interact with patients, how to, how to uh, change your... Um, you know, the, the, the treatments that you use or, or, or not or make those decisions. You know, I, when I started in practice, I didn't really have many resources, and so I, so I used my you know, knowledge to, to talk to patients about uh, their health and their diagnosis and, and so forth. But, but now there are a lot of resources that we can find online and the more that you can back up what you say by high-quality research evidence, the, the, the better it is and the easier it is. And when you can't, I think it's, so, uh, I, I, I think it's really important to help patients understand that when you are saying something based on your opinion that's based on your experience that has value but patients need to know that versus uh, something that is coming from a systematic review and has been researched in lots of randomized control trials and so forth there's a, there's a different level of, of evidence there and I think it's important that patients 
recognize um, that when you're giving them advice, that the advice is coming from, you know, sort of what source. And I think that's the, the more informed they are, the better they are able to, to make those decisions. And I, and I really think that the better you are able to, to, to provide advice um, to, to patients. And, you know, as far as implementing research and practice, I think that, you know, for me, it's, been a, it's, it's just been a gradual morphing over time. I think that making major changes um, suddenly in practice, number one, it's really hard to do. And number two, it's, it's, um, it becomes challenging because if you're going to make a, a real major change, I, I guess I'm speaking too generically to really, um, really speak to that. But for me, it's, it's been a gradual, a gradual shift as my, as my knowledge and my understanding shifts about, uh, about different aspects of care. So, so does so does my care, and so, as an example, um, I I used to be very concerned. I'm still very concerned. I used to be predominantly concerned about a person's pain, not recognizing that they're what I was thinking of as their physical pain was oftentimes part physical pain and part emotional pain. And, you know, the, the sort of the rise of the biopsychosocial model uh, sort of accompanied my um, uh, professional development in, in becoming more aware of uh, how psychological and emotional factors influence influence people's perceptions of pain and maybe even more importantly how they manage how they manage pain and uh, so that that change for me came gradually over time and and actually I hope it it continues to, to morph as, as, as I learn more and so I uh, I, I, I look for other things. I look, I look much more deeply into a person's, uh, you know, life outside of, uh, outside of my office, uh, and, and, uh, listen to them and, uh, spend more time trying to help them understand their condition, uh, because people can be really anxious about things that they don't understand and that can influence their, their, their ability to cope. So, um, yeah, I suppose I've, I've probably gone on a, on a, on a little bit of a tangent here, but, but, um, incorporating evidence into practice is, is, uh, something that I would hope that all practitioners are doing on a constant basis. And it's a, it's a very long-term, uh, very long-term process. It's, it's a process that I would hope that we're all in it, uh, uh, you know, for the long term. Yeah, well, I think very well said. Uh, a couple of things I'll just uh, talk about from my own experience. Your experience is very similar to mine. I have uh, noticed, you know, the way I think about patient care has definitely changed 
Uh, it seems like all the time it's changing. And I think it would be interesting to be a new practitioner just coming out now with all of the research that, I don't know, it just seems like 20 years ago or so, the research wasn't as extensive or coming at us as frequently as it is now. It just seems like it's maybe a little bit more difficult to to digest some of the the research now because it's just so abundant, it's so available. Um, and so, yeah, I think going slowly, I really like that idea and completely changing everything at once is probably impossible and uh, you wouldn't want to do it anyways. <laughs> so I like that, uh, gradual, uh, theme to, uh, to your response and, uh, and just the clarity of it starting, um, you know, with how do I find evidence? Uh, what kind, how do I read through an article? Uh, very good, very good information. Um, so the last question is one I ask of everyone on the podcast who comes on, and this is, uh, you know, one of the goals is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Could you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who, who might wish to go down this route? Sure. Um, research is not done in a vacuum. So anyone who wants to pursue research needs to have connections, needs to uh, probably be mentored, at least on some level. I know I have been mentored on sort of multiple levels uh, here in, in, the, in the past 10 years at the Homer Center for Chiropractic Research, and it's, and it's benefited me greatly, even though those mentorships haven't been uh, truly, truly formal. But um, So finding someone with more experience in research, finding an experienced researcher that you can uh, talk with, bounce ideas off of, very, very important. Um, someone that's interested or considering maybe a, a career in uh, research, especially chiropractic research, I can tell you that um, the research community in chiropractic is very small. There aren't very many of us, and um, there needs to be. So um, there certainly is a need. And in order to become a, a, a researcher, I, I sort of, I don't know if you would say stumbled into it, but I, I, came, I came into it uh, in, in a very, uh, very unusual way. But um, most people come in, in, into chiropractic research in a, in a more traditional way, and, and, it, and it requires additional, usually, uh, almost always, requires additional training in the form of, uh, uh, of another graduate degree that, that has a research emphasis. And that can, that can, uh, that can really, be, really be helpful. Uh, an MD, or a master's degree or a PhD in a research discipline that, uh, where, you, where, where your interest is can, can really be helpful. And even, even for, for me, um, I'm, I'm even now... Um, pursuing uh, an, another doctoral degree because of, uh, of how, it, uh, how I can 
see that it will benefit me uh, professionally and uh, benefit my ability to conduct research and so forth. So, so um, finding a person, uh, finding a mentor, uh, looking, uh, looking at master's or uh, PhD uh, degree programs in an area of interest, that's, uh, those, those are ways to, to get more involved, more involved in research. Great. Well, fantastic advice. And Dr. Vining, I've really appreciated uh, you being on the podcast. I've, I've learned a lot. I know everybody else will. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to share these things. Sure thing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this interview with Dr. Robert Vining. We've got more excellent interviews on their way, so stay tuned.